Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. This is episode number 112 with our guest, Jason Troy. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing, hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Hey guys, thanks for joining us. You're tuned right into The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. I am your host, Josh Carey. Our guest today is a leadership and team building coach. He spent 15 plus years working in marketing leadership positions in Silicon Valley, working with influential leaders such as Steve Jobs, Reed Hastings, and Mark Cuban. Really cool. Jason is the best-selling author of Social Wealth, a how-to guide on building extraordinary business relationships. And that book has sold more than 60,000 copies. Jason Troy was also a featured speaker at 2017 TEDx Wilmington for his talk on how to get coworkers to like each other. His breakthrough employee engagement and team building game, Cards Against Mundanity, I get it, has been played by more than 20,000 employees. It skyrockets trust in minutes to increase performance and maximize teamwork. He's right here. Help me welcome Jason Troy. What's going on, Jason? Hey, it's fantastic to be here and to speak to your wonderful tribe, well, wherever thank you. they might be in the world. Thank you for saying so. I, I, I'm fascinated with this whole topic because it begs the question, why can't we all just get along? What have you found? What do you see? I mean, I wish we could. I mean, in fact, that we can. We just don't go about it in the right way. And I think that becomes a huge challenge. And I think organizationally and just in life itself, we're working from the outside in and sort of back asswards. And that causes us all of the strife and problems. And it's, a, it's one of these fascinating things that, you know, I've been on a journey just like everyone else. I mean, how do you figure out how to build great relationships with people and teamwork, right? And even more so, and this is the same thing with all my clients and everyone I interact with. And I found that it's just, it's a topic that we're on the early, early side of really exploring and, and piecing together for people. Because mainly for the most part in organizations and business, it's just very haphazard. People talk about their success and then they back out, oh, we were really an effective team but then they try to do it all over again in another business and they're not effective at all or they're not as effective as they were. And it's, and it's, a, it's very mysterious in many ways until you start to really break it down and understand how people work and what's required to get them to work together quickly you know, in today's world. What is, what is holding people back? Is it, is it ego? Is it a mix of just high stress and negativity and people can't get themselves out of it? What's predominant when you go in to work with a company that you see? Well, I mean, ego is always a piece of it because it shows lack of self-awareness, right? Because if you're not open and you're not curious, that's a problem. But I think the other thing is that we have a lot of misgivings about sharing and opening up in business with other people and getting to know them. And the problem with that is, is that if you don't start sharing with vulnerable sharing with people right in the moment that you start meeting them about your experiences, your ups and downs, what you're now signed up to do is spend five or 10 years 
working with that person in suboptimal conditions and suboptimal relationship until they get to know you, right? Until you feel really comfortable to start sharing little tiny pieces of you, right? And that's the slow way. And that becomes the real challenge in, in some ways. The second part of it is we throw people in a group together and we don't give them a user manual, mm. right? They don't know how's the best way you communicate. How do you take feedback? What's the best way to approach you if I need a difficult conversation? What are your pet peeves? What are your hot buttons, right? If someone gave you instruction manual, like some, putting together something that was really complicated and you could read it, it'd be a lot better than if someone just throw you a whole bunch of parts on the table and say, you go figure it out. And that's what we do. How do we get those answers when there's a team thrown together or finding themselves together? How do we get the answers? Hey, how do you like feedback? How do you like input? How do we best work together? Does it have to come from, uh, from upper management down or can you work together with your teammates? How does that conversation begin? How does one open up that dialogue? Well, I think you're seeing pockets of people creating essentially what they call how to work with me manuals, right? User manuals. I mean, I use them with clients and you can do them as a team, right? You don't need a whole organization to buy in it, but essentially it's just a worksheet to ask questions, right? And to get to know people and to find out how to best interact with them, right? And no matter how you put it together, right? There's probably better ways than to do it, but it's better to start somewhere. Because having these little bits of information allow you to interact with that person on how it works best for them, not how you believe it is. And the problem is now it's a bunch of guesswork. You're trying to analyze and predict how to serve up people things and how to interact with them instead of getting explicitly from the horse's mouth, like how, you, how the other person wants to interact with you and engage. And it's simple as just filling, having people fill out a piece of paper and handing it around or putting up on a shared drive and then introducing it to new people that go on the team, right? And you can obviously meet with people one-on-one -on -one and do it in a more structured way, but you just have to start somewhere. Because otherwise, everyone has to find that information out by themselves, and that just doesn't happen, and it creates a lot of conflicts. And if you're the person on the team and you're like saying, well, what does it matter about the other people? And I'm like, well, they can torpedo you. One person on a team who doesn't get along and who's a troublemaker and is a cancer and is negative can bring down together a team no matter what size it is. So your career success and personal success is dependent on everyone else you work with. And so, yeah. you, I mean, there's not, there's not really an option. If they don't do well, you won't do well. That's what the research all shows. And working with, you know, thousands of teams and doing this research, the highest performing teams all work well together, every single person. You don't have one person opting out. So if you're in a team like that, it shows that you're underperforming and your team is underperforming, which means you're making less money and you'll get promoted not as fast or you won't do as well in your business, whatever that might be. And again, we could, we could define team for anybody listening, not just in a specific corporation or bigger company, but even an entrepreneur who is working, quote unquote, alone. First of all, I'm sure you have some outsourced or freelance uh, relationships that also fall into this category. But yeah. let's say you do not. Like you said, it's also team in the way of you, your relationship with your clients and customers and prospects and fans and followers, all of that. Right, all, Can, all, all play into this. All those people play into it, right? And, and the key is, is that you've got to get to know them intimately and how they work and you have to build trust with them at a really high level. And that's a requirement. And what I found doing the research on the trust side of it, which is a huge piece of it, is I was going and looking at an experiment that happened a long time ago in 1997 about this professor Arthur Aaron was looking at how to essentially get people to fall in love and to build super close relationships, essentially by snapping your finger. Right? Go on. And so what he found was one of the experiments is he put uh, 54 grad students who were complete strangers in a room, sat them across the table from each other and had them ask really vulnerable questions, 36 of them over 45 minutes, right? So they both had to answer the question. So that's essentially 72 questions back and forth, right? Over 45 minutes, which is really not that much information. And because you're, you know, you're talking fast and sharing it. Well, 30% of the people walked away after that and said that relationship with that person was the closest relationship in their life. And you think about it, the closest relationship in their life, you can go out 
and meet any stranger and create that. You go to a coffee, I could take you to a coffee shop or any place you want to go. And I could take three or four people and you'd walk away with a best friend. In fact, a person who'd know more information about you than any person in your life. Period. Wow. So we're and, talking. And, yeah. and a story. And, I, and this is because the bar is so low on us sharing with other people that no one really knows who we are. And it's so interesting, Jason, because I'm under the impression that people desperately want to share, but we've been burned, we've been put in our spot, yes. we put self-identifying labels on, we stay fearful. That's my story. That's how I showed up to this space my whole life. I couldn't share because of all that shame and guilt and fear and all of that, thinking people were going to retaliate, nobody cares. So I had to protect myself. Isn't that a big hurdle for us to personally get over? It starts there, yeah? It's really hard, right? And the problem is, is that once, what I found is that when you start thinking about getting in your head like that, those are all stories and false narratives. And the only way to get past it really is to create counter evidence. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. And the only way you can do that is actually by doing the opposite, right? If you feel like you need to protect yourself and all of that, you have to now go out and start meeting people where you're sharing yourself in, and they're accepting you, listening to you, and sharing their vulnerable stories back at you is the only way you're going to change that facade and how you look at the world. You just can't you know, create something in your head. You gotta take massive action and do it. And the fact is, if you can just do it really quickly, because you know, I took what that professor did and all I did was now use those questions in a group game, right? I created the same ones and have everyone answer the same question in a group. And what happens is when you're in a group of, you know, two, three, four, five, ten 10 people, and they're all vulnerably sharing, you start connecting and seeing I'm not alone. Everyone's going through trials and tribulations. No one's life's really that great. They all <laughs> yeah. have difficult pasts. They all have challenging childhoods. So we're true. all in this together. It doesn't matter what race, creed, or gender we are. We're all the same, right? So diversity training, it's at like end of the day, you got to strip people all the way down and they want to share like what you're saying. Because I get in groups and people share everything, right? Children dying in birth, like, the, you know, people dying right in front of them, like, you know, all eating disorders, all this depression, I mean, all these things that they'll share with people within a couple minutes of meeting strangers or even teammates that don't know them, right? I, had a, I was on a team doing conflict resolu resolution work and I had someone share in a group about how they've had a couple stillborn children, about, you know, how they were a drug addict and they never told anyone, right, in the entire group and no one even knew and they've been working with them for years, right? So people are willing to do all this stuff, but you have to create a safe place and you have to get enough evidence in it to start moving your past and all the other challenges that you've had to say to yourself, okay, well, people really wanna share. They really are open. We really are all the same. The stories I've been making up, right, have all been things that I've created myself. They're not real. That's my goodness. That's all of that. There's so much there. Um, I spent a lifetime perpetuating a false story and belief that I sold myself as truth. And then I go out into the world and I look for people and experiences that are going to validate this truth that I've sold myself. And the cycle continues. And I say, you see, I'm right. I knew it. But I was going out desperately seeking that so I can continue to feel the way I wanted to feel in that moment until here I am today. You make all the choices to unravel that. And then you said that um, if you're feeling a little uh, like, you know, closed off for your reasons, thinking, well, I can't open up to anybody for, for certain reasons. Like you said, you have to find a way to just crack that shell a little bit and then get the evidence that it is safe and people will support you. Again, personally, um, I never wanted to step out of my little area, the label that I put on for myself, thinking that others have labeled me, because I thought if I dare step up, step out, show people my true power and talent, they're gonna get um, offended and they're gonna retaliate and I wouldn't be strong enough to support against that. So I didn't. 
But now, day in and day out, I don't even see those negative people anymore. I'm surrounded by incredibly strong people like you, Jason, and everybody else who I just see a force field around me to give me the strength. So it's the evidence you need day by day by day, slowly yes. but surely, and it grows and it builds. Seek and ye shall find, right? And you'll see this when it comes to trust, right? What happens when you look and really go into deep about trust is that more trust begets more trust and distrust gets more distrust. Why? Because if I distrust someone, I attribute negative intent to everything I see. True. Oh, they're late showing up to meet me. Oh, you know what? They must not care about my time. Oh, they're, they think they're so busy. What about me? Or if you trust someone, you think, oh, geez, they probably got stuck in traffic. They probably had some other issues, but hey, it's no big deal, right? And that's, this could be the same person and where you are on the trust curve is going to dictate your relationship and where it's going. And it's very difficult once you start getting relationships where you lack trust to turn it around. And also it's harder if you actually trust someone to break it. It takes a lot. So you've got to realize that in these relationships you have with people, there's an underlying things that go on that create your relationships, your teamwork, and your ability to do great things in your business and career that aren't what you may seem it to be. And once you get positive momentum, like you're saying, it just keeps going. Oh and my it's goodness. really hard to break that because you are now getting all this evidence and you're looking for it, right? That's the other part of it. We can look at, it's like, I saw this experiment. They said to look for red cars and people were saying, oh, I didn't see any red cars today, right? And then they go out, drive home and write down, oh, I saw this many red cars. Well, it's because you're collecting evidence to confirm it. That's why they call it confirmation bias, right? Is that you are confirming your, your bias or your point of view, whatever that might be. And it could be a positive one or a negative one. Yeah, and then you, where your focus goes, energy flows, and that's what it is. That's all it's about. And I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and I think, it, you know, a lot of this stuff, people thinking, oh, it's woo-woo and it's out there. I mean, yeah, the, we're talking about the leaf on the tree, but the root causes of these things are where you're going, your trust, your distrust, your relationships, the actions you're taking, right? These are just things that end up happening to you when you start going down this road as an after effect. Yeah. And that's why it's so difficult to change because if you're in a negative mindset, the opposite happens too, right? You're finding all this stuff and why it can't work and why I can't find the resources. And that's difficult to turn around too, because then you have to work really hard at getting that evidence to tell yourself, oh, that was really a false narrative, a false story or a conspiracy theory I had about the world that was incorrect. And then you can break it and turn it around. But you have to be careful that you're, that the life that you live and the evidence that you start collect is extremely powerful in every single thing that we do, positive or negative. And you could think it's woo-woo, as you said, but it's going to be that whether you acknowledge it or not. Yes. Meaning uh, you are the collection of your, your reality. You've brought yourself there for better or worse, and you can bring yourself to another place for better or worse. Whether you believe it, whether you think it, you could you know, sit and blame others and make excuses all day. Okay, but look where you are. Or you can take the action that gets you to uh, a different place that you know you're capable of. Self-acceptance is a huge piece of this puzzle, right? I'm just actually, I was, re I was looking at this story that I forgot about. A teacher asked the, their students, um, you know, how do you get out of prison? And, you know, people would say, oh, get the key, get a great attorney, you know, break out. And the teacher was shaking their heads and smiled and said, no, the first thing about getting out of prison is to realize you're in it. Mm. Wow. Because a lot of prisons are self-imposed. They're not real. So much truth to that. It took me 40 plus years to really acknowledge that and do something about it because I was resisting. Like, oh, I'm not in prison. It's just, you know, this is happening and that's happening. And until you realize, you know what, this isn't, this isn't good where I'm at and self-imposed. I put myself there. Yeah. And that's the problem. I mean, look at business. A lot of the problems comes that people actually aren't looking at things and accepting it and taking accountability for where they're currently at first. Right. And that also goes through a lot of lack of self-awareness 
And that causes the problem because you can't solve a problem if you don't understand what it is, right? No matter what the root cause is, poor relationship, poor teamwork, underperformance, right? It doesn't matter how you look at it. You've got to accurately assess where you're currently at and accept it before you're able to take massive action and create lift and change. Otherwise, you're misdiagnosing things, misnavigating it, right? All these other things, making excuses, offloading blame. And that creates a whole other facade, right? And then you keep staying on this path where life isn't going well for you, you know, personally or professionally. Let's talk about your life personally. I'd love to have you connect the dots for us. Go back to the very beginning. Growing up as a child, what was the big source of tension or conflict in your world? You know, my parents got divorced when I was pretty young and my mom was a nurse anesthesiologist and was working a lot. So essentially growing up, I was really by myself and I was an only child. So I, I, oh. I pretty much had to fend for myself, right? There wasn't, we didn't went around any close family or friends or anyone else. So, you know, essentially probably from, you know, 10 or 11 for the most part onwards, I was by myself a majority of the time, right? And I didn't have a car until I was 16. So you know, a lot of the times there weren't that many friends even close that I had in school. So I just had to do a lot of things. I mean, it's self-reliant, but there's also a downside of that too, because you have to figure out how to do everything and you can't rely on anyone else and ask for help or really count on anyone else. Cause if you don't do it, it doesn't get done. Right. If I don't make my lunch, I don't eat. Right. If I don't do simple things, and so the challenge with that is, is, you know, going through life and letting people in and letting them help, right, has been really a lifelong challenge until I started to look and identify it because I had just, you have to learn to do everything by yourself and figure things out. And it's hard to just break down emotionally and reach someone's hand and go walk down with them um, and allow them to really help you not to work with other people, but to let them in and really allow them to solve the problem for you and just to sit back. Growing up, so you painted that picture. So your parents divorced at a young age, which I, I'm guessing even prior to that divorce, you as the only child were, were probably exposed to a world, you know, within a lot of turmoil. Because my parents fought in front of me, right? And I mean, mm -hmm. I got in the middle of it. So it wasn't like it was in another room and I didn't hear right. it. So there was a healthy amount of conflict and tension constantly. So you lived in a, you know, a literal roller coaster. My dad had a lot of other health issues. So mm -hmm. our relationship was really not good either. And my mom worked a lot more than my dad. So that also caused a lot of problems too. So well, what do you, what do you remember with that environment and circumstance as a young child, even trying to process this, what do you remember you told yourself about the world and what was going on? You know, you couldn't really count on anyone else but yourself. And, you know, the people that love you the most eventually are probably going to strike out and hurt you. There you go. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and that, and that's a message that was, I think, hard and really deep down. And the older you get when you don't think about these things, right, the harder it is to go back to these memories and really figure it out because you got to put yourself in that place. And it's much more difficult because you're farther and distance away and you tend to romanticize the past. So you self protect, protect yourself, right? It's a survival mechanism, right? You don't want to go to that place anymore because it's really painful and it hurts and our brains are wired to keep us alive and away from pain. Mm. So it's a, it has to be a very intentional thing. You know, the accountability mirror when people do these things are the toughest thing they can do in their life the first time through, right? Because they've got to know that they won't quote unquote die by going through it and they'll survive on the, and get to the other side. So what kind of um, teenager were you? How did you cope with that mindset that, hey, you only can count on yourself and those that say they love you most will eventually fizzle away? Well, you know, I think that forced me to be more of an extrovert because I had to find other people. So in essence, I guess I created my own family by through friends and doing mm -hmm. things. And I went to a Jesuit college prep school 
and the motto was man for others. It was less on the religious side of things and it was more on serving and helping other people. Like we, junior and senior year, we were required weekly to go and do service. I mean, meaning work for a charity or another organization, not any religious intent, just we had to pick something that we had to go and do. And I think being around a lot of people and you know making those people your friends and putting a lot of energy into that really helped me because then I was home a lot less, right? Because, you know, when I was in, you know, 16, my parents got me a car and, you know, it wasn't a great one, but it worked. And that way I really was never home. I mean, I was with other people or doing other things so I wouldn't have to be alone. And I realized I had to create these pockets of people in my life because that's all I had. So it's interesting because you didn't want to remove yourself from people. You wanted to, to be drawn towards people. Yeah, because I knew that that was the only option I really had, I guess, at the time. I didn't really think about it like that. I just loved being around people because I was forced to be by myself so much and I have a choice, right? It's kind of, you know, sometimes people go, I think, either way. They either go all the way the other way, right? Or they revert back into just being by themselves. And I took it saying, look, I had to do something with this. And so, you know, and, and I think it was also because my parents were really proactive about telling me to work hard and get an education and do all these things. So in essence, I was like, okay, I got to, I got to solve this problem. And I don't think I was really aware of it completely, but I just felt like, well, if I'm alone, the only way to not be alone is being around other people. So I have to find things to do, right? That's probably as far as that point as I thought in my head about it. What did you see yourself in the, you know, near future that you were going to do as a young adult and make of yourself in life? You know, I don't know if I really knew exactly, but I wanted to work with other people and be a part of probably a team and do all these things because I didn't have them, right? And that, and the problem with that is in the business world is that's a fault, you know, you can get uh, into some really bad situations because you want to believe the dream. Like you want to go work for other people who only are interested in making money and making you feel like they're a part of a family so then they can make money off of you, right? Mm. And create that environment of manipulating and influencing it because that's essentially your blind spot, right? Because you want something and you start substituting wherever you can find it. Tell me more about that. What did you just say? Reiterate what you just said about Well, like you, you could go work for a business, right? And someone can make you feel like you're part of a family as part of a business, but really, that's not really true. Their bottom line is to make money and sure, maybe that they value relationships at that point, but not as much as they do the money in the business. And you start putting your heart and soul into all of that. Well, that's right for manipulation and for people to use you or to really self-direct you to give way more of yourself than you probably should. Right. And that's, you know, and, and throughout my career, I think in many ways that started to happen sometimes, you know, there were positive things that came out of it, but also I think some negative things as well, because you allow yourself to be put in situations that aren't really ones that are good for a human being to be in. So you put yourself in situations looking back on it where you were interested in just getting the being a, a a positively contributing factor component to the team, but nobody really cared about that. So they were just using your desire to fill that point. And yeah. yeah. And they may have cared somewhat, right? Sure. But they didn't care. The desire for being successful and making money was way more important than me. Wow. So did that ever come crashing down at some point and you said, oh my gosh, I got to get out? Or did you just navigate through it and now you're like, I'm going to do this for I other probably companies? just navigated through it and I didn't really contemplate the, all these pieces together. I think at one point I was doing, the, I started to do what I'm doing now as a side hustle and I was working with someone else and I realized their drive wasn't as much and they were really good at pressing my buttons. And in mm. essence, what had happened in that relationship is that instead of being Batman, I was Robin. And I created this facade that together we could do anything, but the other person didn't necessarily believe that. But mm. they let that go on because it was beneficial for them. Mm. They could use my work and effort and all the rest of it. But 
I had to break out of that and say to myself, you know, this is really a broken, flawed thing. And then, you know, Tiffany came, sometimes when you're in a situation, you start to, all the pieces come together for whatever reason. And that really came to me. And I said to myself, you know, in that moment that if I don't step up and be Batman, this is just going to keep happening because I'm allowing it to go on because I'm putting myself second to create something that I want, but it's not possible unless I actually do the opposite, which is, you know, be on my own and be okay with that and create whatever I need and be successful at that. And then I could be a part of other people and be it more than a successful manner. And then I had to do a lot of soul searching and everything else, but, and hmm. work. Wow. So, so much power in, in that uh, prior 60 seconds. Uh, I heard a quote, I think it's in your book, where you spoke about, um, we are not self-made individuals, but in fact, we are every piece of people who have ever said a kind word to us or about us or have contributed a good deed to us or on our behalf. Talk about that. I love that concept because we initially feel so removed and isolated in this singular uh, journey we're on. But in fact, that's not at all what's happening here. No, I mean, we're just, uh, we're just some of our experiences in the world around us, right? I mean, in, in our relationships and interactions. I mean, all of those things make up who we are. No one, I mean, unless you lived on a mountain, but you wouldn't be hearing this podcast and were completely by yourself and never interacted with anything else, right? Which is literally impossible now. You, all these things that go on and the people we interact with and all these experiences make us up and they are with other people in some form or fashion, right? Whether they're faceless people, they're on social media or they're live and in person or whatever they might be, right? And those things create who we are today and we have to embrace the good, the bad, the ugly and just accept it. And you, that's a lot of power in that because it also gives the opportunity at any point to turn it all around and to change and to write the ending of your own story, right? Like someone told me one day, um, and it, I, I saw some version of this Brene Brown, but someone told me before this was that like, we don't have any control over the beginning of our story, but we can write the ending. And I thought that was really so true because you, you know, you're born, you don't have any power over that. That's, that's other people's choices. But everything until a point where you no longer exist is yours. Hmm. And we could write that moment to moment. And yes. we are the collective sum of our moments and our experiences that we attract consciously or subconsciously to us. Yeah. And, that's, yeah. and I think it's empowering when you think about it like that, because then you're not a victim or it's not faith or all these bad circumstances. Sure, all these things are, all the things happening to everyone listening, this is real, right? And there, this is not to say that it's not, but there's an opportunity every day you have to change and change the course of what happened and realize mm -hmm. that the past is your past. And the only power you have over, you know, like <laughs> is the power of now, right? And it's so true. And that's, I think that's, I think I believe and look at it as extremely powerful and positive, right? No matter what circumstance we're currently in, that's mm. not the end. And we have the power to write the next chapter in our book and the pens in our hands. It depends what we do with it. Talking about uh, the chapter in our book, I want to ask about your book, which sold to date 60,000 copies in conjunction with your TEDx talk, which I saw has over 50,000 views on YouTube, for the sake of our listeners, the entrepreneur, the business owner, the founder, how did that happen? How did you get to that point? What was in place that got you there? Well, I think, you know, with all those things, I did a lot of research. I spent a lot of time interviewing and asking people. And then, you know, getting ready to perform it or put it all together, right? I mean, these are all complicated things that you really have to understand. And the problem is today is no one really wants to do that much work, right? I mean- Say it again, say it again. All right, the problem with, you know, even, let's just take a look at publishing books, right? With self-publishing, the problem is, is that there's this misnomer that you can just write a book and it's true, but to, rate, to do a great book, 
requires great work and huge inquiry and all of these twists and turns that go on in, in order to create something like that. It's just not possible to pump out you know, a book every six months or just to sit down and write it in a couple of months and expect it to be a great book that's going to make an impact. It doesn't work like that, right? And I mean, it's, it's the a- same thing, uh, really quick. It's the same thing with a podcast. People think that, oh, I have something to say. I have a microphone. I want to start a podcast. And they do or they might or they think about it. And then they quickly figure out, first of all, there's a hundred pieces to one podcast before, during, and after that need to be in place. But then the big question is always, okay, how do I get listeners? How do I get someone to tune into it? It's like, it's like the same thing with writing a book. You think you're just going to pen this book, get it out there. And then I'm going to go on Facebook and ask, oh, how do I sell this book? How do I make it a bestseller? It's like, well, how much time do you have? How much work are you putting in? It all goes to that, right? I've talked to podcasters who've had, you know, five, 600 episodes, and it's pretty interesting to see that it takes them 100 episodes to learn whatever they're going to learn, 200, 300, 400. It's not like the learning curve for the people that are really good ever had stopped. In fact, it increased, and they realized how little they knew through 100 podcasts. And when, I, and when people are hearing that, do you, if you realize how many episodes and how much time and work 100 podcasts would take, it's unreal, right? Which obviously you know because you're on 112. But, but that's what's required. You just can't go and do 20 and figure, oh, I figured this out because it's not possible, right? It's like, exactly. I mean, even writing my book, it, you know, it took me about 15 months from start to finish, but I had done research for years in my head and other stuff on it, right? Yeah. And even my team building game. I mean, I've been doing, you know, since I started working on my TEDx, you know, speech and doing that, it took a long time. It's been probably now four years since I started to ask this fundamental question and I'm starting to write a book on it. But, you know, the problem is, is that you just can't wake up one day and do these things, right? And and it's no matter what you do, you have to put in the time, energy and effort and go really deep. And you have to look at what are other people in your industry doing? Where are the holes, right? So even for my book, like I tell people all the time, if you're going to write a book in a niche, go look at the best books that are somewhat around what you want to write. You go buy them, go get them in a library and at least skim them to see what are they saying on it? What are the topics? And you know, how can you stand out and what's missing, right? Because that's like step one, but no one even does that. So how do you even know if your book Mm. is solving a problem that no one else is really doing, right? That is something that you can market on. It'd be a huge competitive advantage when any marketer asks you, who is this for? What's the difference in this book that's going to make? Well, most people don't even know because they've never even looked through the top 10, top 20 competitors' books or at least skim them enough to know them, right? And and you'd think that's plumbing, but that's the problem with a lot of stuff today is that people don't want to go in and it's the same thing when I'm doing this work in teamwork. Like, no one talks about trust. They talk about trust at a high level, but no one says, well, how are you going to do that? Right. How do you actually build trust, right? And, and what are the exact steps to do it? What are the actions to take? And how do you set this up, right? That, well, that, that's, the, that's where the rubber meets the road. We can all talk about high level stuff and like, oh, trust is so important or building a great culture or doing whatever. But the, the rubber meets the road when you say, why? and how and what and getting specific to millimeter by millimeter how do we actually do this and then pulling the plug and doing it right yeah is it just i i think that regardless of what we're talking about um people don't take the action massive fear whatever their own self-imposed fear is they fear how they're gonna look what people are going to say and all of that just keeps them, oh, well, let me research more. I'm not quite ready. Let me ask more questions. I don't know this. Let me figure it out. Let me get the full picture. You don't need the you full picture. You never do that, right? No. Jeff Bezos, if you anyone to read uh, 2016 Amazon letter to investors of Jeff Bezos wrote this and he said the company that size, right? So we're talking Amazon. Right. He operates the business with 70% of the information, not 100%. Because his motto is, I'd rather be wrong all the time at 70 because I've got between 70 to 90 to course correct. Mm. It's cheaper. And he said, if I get to 90 and I wait for that, all that, what you're talking about, I have to be correct. And he said, that's not possible for a human being to be correct. Often, no matter how much information they get, they're going to have to pivot. They're going to have to change course. But at 90%, this large company is almost impossible, right? But that's because, the point of life and business. Yeah. Yeah. Do it at 70 
and you got time to figure it out. Do it at 90, you don't. And you're waiting around and waiting around for confirmation and it doesn't, doesn't come. I was watching this movie last night called Plus One and it's some romantic comedy. And one of the theme, the theme of the movie is if you keep waiting around dating all these people to have this light ball moment and saying that's the perfect person and get all the evidence, you, you'd be dead by the time you wouldn't got it, which means it's not there, right? You just have to pick the person that you're willing to push your, all, your chips in, do whatever you need to do to figure that out. But it's all a gamble. There's no assurances there. You're not getting something that's saying, oh, this is going to work. Everyone's doing the same way, right? Yeah. It's all calculated gamble. It's all pushing your chips in. It's all taking a leap of faith. And when you start to, re when you start to realize that's what you have to do as a human being, and there is no confirmation, right? Yeah. Isn't like there? I always give the example of whether it's you want to create a video, you want to publish something on social, or you want to do a podcast. I always talk about that. I've been, I love video, first of all. Um, I've been doing it for years. First of all, I come from the acting and filmmaking background. So I have that desire and skill and ability in my favor. But uh, I've been, I, I've been doing videos for industries uh, for, you know, 10, 12, 14 years. And I always say, looking back on my early videos, they're absolutely laughable, right? But in the moment, you are, you, you are making the best decision for what you have yes. in the moment. To the point, this very podcast, you know, we're now 112 episodes in, in less than a year, right? So not a, not a long amount of time to look back on, but I am currently going back on the videos and I'm, I, I don't usually publish them on YouTube, but now I have them all uploaded on YouTube. I'm making some adjustments. So I've been watching earlier episodes, episode 20, 30, 40, what is that, six, eight, nine months ago? And I already am starting to cringe if I allow myself to, meaning it's a whole different persona. It's a whole different look. It's a whole different conversation. I was, I've grown, but that's okay. That's, but that's going to happen. If that wasn't happening, you know what? I would say to you, there's something really wrong and you haven't learned and put in 100% commitment to this, and that is going to cause the result set to be really suboptimal and not as good, right? Yes. I mean, you have to be getting better every day. You have to be getting rid of every batch of episodes you're gonna, because you're gonna learn. And yes. self-reflection, and part of the great thing about the human mind, we flood it with information as we find patterns. It's very good at pattern identification and figuring stuff out when we do massively get confused. That's why you'll hear a lot of entrepreneurs tell you that most people quit when they're right near the solution. And when you get most confused is right when you're on the edge of a breakthrough because you're getting flooded with all this information, but you can't, you haven't pieced it together and put the patterns together because the key is life is nonlinear. It's not ABC. It's not linear, right? So it's kind of like a, think of it as spider web, right? It's all over the place. And all of a sudden you get this bolt and you're like, oh my God, like you had, everyone has that an aha moment, right? Well, if you piece back together the aha moment, it's all these blips all over the place. It's not in, in a nice little line like A, B, C, D, E, F. It's mm. A, Z, L, M, G, P, T, right? And then all of a sudden it happens. Mm. So that's required for us. So you yes. doing all those things helps you create a much better podcast. Yeah. And episode 150 will be better than any episode before because you're learning and evolving and episode 200 and 300 will be the same thing. And that's, that's life. That's, I mean, that's why we do great things is because it's an evolution. Yeah. And to put it the other way, this very moment right here, right now, episode 112 with Jason Troy, as we are having this conversation, I firmly believe that with all of my experience, all of the information I have at my disposal, this is the best that it should and could be. I'm happy with the lighting. I'm happy with the background, with the mic, with our conversation. I think that I'm showing up as, as powerfully as I could right here, right now. But guess what? In six, nine, or 12 months, I'm going to look back on this very episode and cringe. Yeah, because you're learning and you're learning new things that are going to make it better. And you're interacting with other people. You're learning things. And often as we're doing things, it's like one to two degree tweaks that we're doing that make massive impact. It's not 
right? So the problem is most people are thinking, well, I got to do this massive thing and huge change for me to get like all these new things happening. It's usually small little switches that people need to do that get them the biggest lift, right? And the yeah. same thing you'll figure out, right? There'll be a couple little small things you'll do that will make all the difference in the world to make it that much better than it is now. And that's a requirement too, as you go on, but it's, it's much harder to make changes at episode 200 than it is at 50 because you'll have refined things and the things at that point are much more subtle. So it requires you to even do more work at that point to figure those out and to go all in because they're small little mindset changes. They could be asking a few questions different. They could be doing tiny little bit of things. But if, if you do those and like everyone else listening, no matter what you do, yeah. you keep, you know, progressing and making significant progress while other people flatline or crater, right? Which is typical. Yeah. And you want to talk about self-awareness in this very episode. I mean, now we're getting meta, right? Talking about this episode a few times as we're doing it. I love it as the example. I actually discovered and asked you a question that I've never asked anybody before that now I'm thinking that's a really strong question that I'm going to navigate to in future episodes. So in this episode with you, because of self-awareness, I was able to hear and, and discover that question and then realize that's a really well-crafted question for future episodes. So it's already happening. Yeah, and you can tell that because of all the episodes you did. But when you first started out, the same thing would have happened and you wouldn't have been able to do that. And that's the key, right? And the other thing to say to people, showing up when they say it's 80% is true. I went back, I think it was probably a year and a half or two, probably a year and a half ago to contact uh, hosts of the podcast I had been on before. Because I was like, you know, I had some new material, my team building thing I thought would be useful for them to go on. And I ended up going back and finding out that 40% of the podcast that I'd been on had disappeared. Mm -hmm. Right. And the, the, the people had no ever thought about bringing them back. And a lot of them had, almost all of them had at least 40, 50 episodes on them when they stopped. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just was really shocked that I didn't really find any that had 10, 15, 20, or was like, well, I'm doing him, but I'm going to pick it up again. And, I just did a season of it or something else. Like people had just given up and I had people on there, a few people who had done 150, 200 episodes. And it was really shocking to me that they just walk away from it. But that's how many people did 40%, right? Mm. I mean, within 2014 to 2000, you know, and 17, that's a lot of podcasts that started and went away. So just like you staying the course, just like in life, uh, you eliminate most of the competition by just actually continuing. Mm. So that's, that's an amazing quote right there. So my brand, The Hidden Entrepreneur, founded on the premise that I spent a lifetime hiding behind fear, using that as an excuse not to do everything I knew I should and was capable of doing. Can you share a time with us that you found yourself hiding in fear, yet you worked right through it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think even just doing my TEDx speech, right? I mean, you know, when you go through this and practice these things and get on a stage and do a speech for like, you know, 11, 12 minutes, that's really hard because every word you say has impact and you really have to practice it so you do the best job that you can, right? I mean, I don't think I've ever been, that's probably one of the most scared I've ever been because I knew it was being filmed. I knew I was doing a big event, right? I was like, could be stage fright, you know? I, I, you know, I had to travel somewhere else to go ahead and do all this. And, you know, I just prepared even more and did everything that I could. Um, I ended up getting a coach to try to help through it, right? Which really made a difference. And I found a coach who had been a producer or was a producing a TEDx too. So that also helped because I understood which, you know, how to go on and the things to do but I just pushed past it, right? And I remember sitting in the audience and one of the people, two of the people that were practicing ahead of me the day before really stumbled badly. And then I was going on and I mean, I was really like sweating like bullets, like, you know, to the point where I was like, fear had been a really high because it's, oh my God, what if that's me, right? Mm. And then I remember going through uh, my rehearsal and that was the best version I had ever done on stage. And it taught me, you know, a lesson that's saying, look, we're all scared. 
You just have to get up there and do it. And at that point, you'll be successful if you just do what you've done before and believe in the process and trust yourself. Right. And then the next day I thought, well, the same thing sort of, you know, no one else really made mistakes. Few people did, but I still went out there and was so nervous. Like, you know, am I going to be able to do this? Am I going to forget and everything? And then I did it great. And what was really funny is I, I missed a couple lines that I had put in there, but I went on as though it was all the same. And no one knows the difference because no one has a speech in front of them. And I looked afterwards and I said, it really didn't matter how much I forgot or whatever, as long as I stayed in control and I enjoyed myself and had put in the time, it was all going to work itself out. And of course it did, right? And that was a huge lesson to learn like everything else. It's a great talk. We'll, we'll certainly link to that in and around the show. What is the mantra you live by today? I mean, it's really just embrace courage, be courageous and be vulnerable. Because that's, that's the, really the requirement, I mean, of doing both. And if you're not, it's, life's going to be really difficult for you because it's scary a lot. And if you're not vulnerable, you're not going to really be able to get close to people and share things. And sure, you're going to get burnt, but that's life. But the other way is worse because you have to close yourself off or warm yourself up. And in today's world, you don't have, I mean, you meet someone, you have moments. And then those moments could change the rest of your life if you invite them in. But you've got to be opening up and be vulnerable in order for that to happen. So you just got to step out and do it and be, get out of your comfort zone and make it happen, right? I mean, if, the same thing you're doing, right? I mean, it's yeah. the same. I mean, because we're all talking about this. In many ways, and we use the words and we're dancing around a circle and it's the same circle, but we just have to go out and do it and press past our fears and do things in spite of how we feel, what else is going on and act, right? It's like Olympic athletes I saw, like I saw, I can't remember who I saw speak years ago, but they were, I think some swimmer and it wasn't Michael Phelps, but they said, if you think I like swimming seven days a week and getting in a pool for 12 hours a day, it's like, you're crazy. I do it in spite of how I feel. I do it in spite of anything because my goal is to be the best that I can possibly be. And my goal is to win, you know, an Olympic medal. And that requirement is me to do that seven days a week. And so that's what I'm doing. But it's not how I feel. I don't let that get in the way of what I need to get done and, and how to go about doing it. I relate to that completely, wherein I wake up at 6 a.m. every morning, seven days a week, even on the weekends, and I immediately uh, run on my treadmill to get some exercise in me. Do you think I want to do that? Of course not. But I do it because there's a bigger why, a bigger goal. I know that that is required for the advancement of what I'm working towards and who I want to be. So all of that allows me to wake up early and to get on that treadmill every day, time and time again. But nobody likes the same exact thing. I don't like doing it. But when I am, I feel great because of the future picture. Yes, and everyone can do it. Oh it's God. a false narrative to think that you're special oh. and that you can wake up at 6 a.m. and run on that treadmill, right? It's like I'm a runner, too, and running in marathons, and I've done pretty well. I just started in November of 17 running marathons and just training and doing I'd never run before in my life, and I, wow. ran, a, I ran a couple of really good marathons. People are like, wow, that's awesome. Like, I can't believe you did that. And I'm like, well, you know, all I did was run the miles. I decided to get up at 4 a.m. and run. You can too. Yeah, you know? I love it. Tell me more about what you just said, the false narrative. That, 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 well, it's that a false narrative because basically what they're saying is that, oh, you're special. Oh, you have these gifts. Oh, you can do all of these things, but I can't because I'm not that gifted or I can't you know, get up and run or I can't do this or that, right? They'll make up these stories about the world around them that aren't true, right? To then allow themselves to opt out of whatever it is that they don't want to do. It's, it's an excuse. They, they, they have excuse. just given themselves an excuse and that's what they're going to live with. Yeah. And running is, I mean, I love running because end of the day, anyone can do it. 
right? right. I mean, unless you have some physical health conditions, right? But almost everyone else can. And the greatest equalizer is if you don't run the miles, you can't do it. It's not like people who are marathon runners who are running these, you know, incredible times, like professionally, if they don't run 120 miles a week and they're training, they don't run a marathon well. They can't sit out there and run 50 and be like, oh, forget it. For this training cycle, I'll just do half of what everyone else is doing and be competitive. They won't even last. They won't even get close, right? So if you don't put in the time and effort, you will be exposed, right? So it's the same thing, right? You got to get out there and do the running, but people don't want to wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning. So then, they, then, so then they just tell you, oh, it's amazing if you run a marathon. I could never do that. Well, sure you could. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Either you don't want to or it's a false narrative that you're trying to do that so you can opt out of getting up that early and making the same sacrifices that I've had to do in order to get it done. Right. And I always say, well, let's change one word. You said, I can't do that. And the change isn't can't to can. It's you're, you're literally lying to yourself by saying, I can't do that. Because as you said, of course you can. What's the true word? I won't. Okay, now we're a little closer. So fine, you won't do that. Now we're being a little more truthful. Now you can go about your business and figure out why you won't. Yeah, or find something that you will do, right? Correct. Right? When people say about running, I'm like, okay, well, there's cycling. There's a lot of other stuff that you can do if you want to be competitive and have a goal, right? It's not, there's a lot of ways you can do many things out there, but you got to find a way and, and do it, right? And, and yep. have the drive and have the push and push yourself in order to do it. Otherwise, you're just waiting around and spending your whole life being a voyeur of everyone else and locking yourself in the self-imposed prison we talked about before and you have the key, right? And that's the problem. All the people have the keys and they're not opening the door, right? Mm -hmm. And they're thinking that they're locked up and they're not. Well, that's, that's the root of a problem. You gotta realize you're in prison first and then use the key and get out. And then you can take the next steps. Otherwise, it's all worthless. That was me realizing that um, I never realized victim was a thing until recently I heard it a couple of years ago. And I'm like, light bulb, oh my goodness, that's actually a thing. And hello, that's me. And, and you find yourself playing this, but I was ready. I was self-aware and I was inching my way out of that role. And then when I heard victim, I'm like, wow. That's a thing. I can't believe that I've been doing it and then work against it. Yeah. And it's the same thing when you're working on teams full of people that don't get along, right? They all, they're all the victim and you got to get them off that modality that they're the victim. They're the victor and they have complete control over what other people do mm. by being vulnerable, opening up, taking a leap of faith, giving people a chance, being more trusting, asking more questions. I mean, we're all really powerful and we all downplay our ability to influence other people. No matter where you are in a team, you can be the lowest level individual and you can influence a team of people considerably, right? And what you do, how you go out doing it, the questions you ask. So, I mean, that's, that's yeah. one of the keys to life is to realizing it's like you hold the power. No one else really does, but we try to act like that so we can opt out of the accountability and not be responsible for what occurs and what role we play in it. Absolutely perfect. As we're wrapping this up, help me, Jason, put this all into perspective for those listening right now. What, what are we really saying in, uh, in a nice soundbite here? What should they do next? Well, I think the key is, is really starting to understand where you're currently at in your life, taking accountability for it, and then starting to realize, okay, well, how can I build great relationships and get to know people around me on their terms, right? Professionally, especially, right? Because this is a huge piece of it. Obviously, the personal pride of it is, is massive, but that's a requirement. How do I do the basic thing, which if I don't solve for trust and I don't build a high level of trust, the rest of everything I do is going to fall apart because I can't create great teamwork. I can't get great results with clients, prospects, or anyone else, like unless they trust you, right? And then you've just got to really get to know people and spend the time of figuring out how do I build all of these things, right, that are required for me to interact with people. And that's a lifelong journey, but you need help from other people you need to read, listen to podcasts, put stuff together, right? I mean, there's a lot of options out there. I mean, sure, if you pay people, it will help you go faster. But if that's not an option, there are a lot of other things that you can do. But it's complicated. And if you don't figure it out, you will not be successful. It's bottom line. You just won't. And you'll underperform and you'll waste the life that you've been given 
just sitting around and wondering what have, could have, or should have. Absolutely amazing. I will leave you with this final question. Jason Troy, how would you like to be remembered? I would like to be remembered as, you know, helping other people and, and helping them achieve their seemingly impossible dreams, goals, and relationships. Absolutely perfect. I feel like I could stay and talk all day with you. Really cool conversation. Thank you for showing up, opening up, and sharing all this with us today, Jason. Hey, well, thanks for having me on the show and speaking to your fantastic tribe and all the people on Facebook. Awesome. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in, whether it's right here, right now, to the live broadcast, or you're catching this in its native podcast form on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Leave us a review. I love reading your thoughts. We're going to have another great episode for you, not too far behind. I appreciate you spending your time here. Until we do it again, go get them. Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.